If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast features a conversation with historian Andrew Roberts. Andrew is the author of several history books, including biographies of Napoleon and Churchill. His latest book, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History, compares nine major figures from modern history to explore whether there are any traits or characteristics that make a leader successful during conflict. Our digital editor, Emma Mason, met Andrew in London to find out more. So perhaps you could just run us through um, initially what inspired you to write the book. When I was sitting my entrance exam for university back in 1981, you had to do a three-hour paper on one sentence. And the question that um, I remember was, how does one person lead 100 And I can't even remember whether or not that was the one I chose to write about, but it's always stuck in my mind, that uh, question. And of course, when it comes to uh, military history... You don't think about just 100, but uh, you think about a million or 100 million, or in China and India's case, a billion people. How do you lead? And so when I was asked to do a series of lectures for the New York Historical Society uh, by the Lerman Institute, I was prompted really to, to to look at that question and to ask myself that question. And it was a series of 10 lectures. So I chose nine leaders, war leaders, and tried to see what was, uh, what they had in common, and what the, what divided them and their differences. And it struck me very powerfully by the time that I'd given the ninth lecture, um, that they had an awful lot more in common than divided them. Even um, even people like Adolf Hitler, um, who obviously has seems to have nothing in common whatsoever with democratic and and civilized leaders, um, has certain sort of tricks of the trade, certain techniques of war leadership, and uh, so my um, primary motivation really for this book was to was to investigate that phenomenon. Fantastic. And how did you go about selecting those leaders? Was it all related to the, the lectures you'd given? or Yes, the, um, the lectures that I gave over three years were just about people who interested me, frankly. Um, they had to be war leaders. That was um, the uh, prerequisite. But other than that, I could choose anybody I liked. Um, I was writing and interested in um, Winston Churchill at the time. I wrote a big book, um, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. And so Churchill was always going to be one of them. And of course, that also did uh, draw me towards the Second World War and Second World War leaders, um, of whom there are an awful lot. But I'd also written a book about Napoleon, and uh, so the Napoleonic Wars was important and interesting to me. And um, 
I knew Margaret Thatcher. She appointed me to take her place in the Margaret Thatcher Archive Trust. And uh, her war leadership in the Falklands was something that I remembered as a, as a um, young man. And uh, so I wanted to look at that as well. So I have to say it's complete serendipity, frankly. I, I can't claim. People have already asked me why isn't George Washington there and why isn't Abraham Lincoln there? Just simply because I was writing about the people who were interesting me at that time. And what qualities did you find they had in common? Well, it's very interesting The what they don't have in common um, that you think they might. Um, charisma, for example, is a almost entirely um, artificial construct. It's something that people can create. Adolf Hitler himself was not in the slightest bit charismatic, but once you have Leni Riefenstahl doing your movies and um, Albert Speer doing your rallies and Joseph Goebbels in complete control of all of the propaganda in the Reich, um, and nobody being able to contradict him, you can create a charisma. And so uh, nobody's born charismatic. And so um, I found that um, that charisma actually wasn't something that uh, all of these leaders necessarily had in common. Um, neither was a sense of humour. There were lots of people, Margaret Thatcher, the classic example, which <laughs> she would, you'd meet her at a drinks party and she'd start with, um, uh, as her small talk would be, so how do you think NATO is going, Andrew? <laughs> which uh, would be always extremely off-putting, but nonetheless, um, a sense of humour isn't necessary, or small talk. Um, neither um, really is, is having a good character, and there are plenty of adulterers in this group, there are plenty of people who um, you uh, certainly wouldn't want to spend any time with at all, really. Um, but the things that they do have in common, and this became more and more strong as I um, continued through the uh, the lecture series was a powerful moment, usually in early adolescence, where their ideology became fixed. Um, and it was often because of some important outside element, something that was going on in the world that affected them and uh, and created their their assumptions, their global assumptions. And then in their mid to late 20s, usually, um, not always, in Adolf Hitler's case, it was a little bit uh, later than that, but um, usually they have a powerful moment when they recognise their own capabilities, uh, their capacity for leadership, their capacity for uh, doing something impressive or extraordinary. And I came across this so many times that I uh, believe that it couldn't just simply be a coincidence. Now, I accept, of course, that this is true of leaders um, in other spheres, leaders in business, leaders in uh, in politics, as opposed to just war leaders. But because I was a military historian, I decided to concentrate on war leaders. One of the themes that you explore in the book, obviously, is self-belief, and that, that they, many of them had this sense of destiny. That Dick Churchill, when he was a teenager, was I was I'm destined to save the nation. Um, can you talk us a little bit more through that? Yes, it's a very important um, uh, aspect. I don't think you can understand Winston Churchill unless you appreciate this driving force of personal destiny that he uh, that sense of personal destiny that he had. When Churchill became Prime Minister in May 1940, he wrote of that moment later in his war memoirs, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. 
And this sense of destiny was something that he really had ever since he was a 16-year-old schoolboy at Harrow. He uh, told his best friend, Merlin Evans, the uh, lad was called, um, that there shall be great upheavals and great struggles in our lives and that I shall be called upon to save England and save London and save the empire. And uh, and he believed this uh, for the rest of his life and it allowed him in the great crises, the greatest crises of our history, uh, to stay extraordinarily calm and to keep a very good sense of humour and to um, encourage his uh, entourage and parliament and the press and the people because he absolutely believed in himself. This was the this was the theme you found through with all the nine leaders. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, uh, Margaret Thatcher was um, felt that um, she had a sense of destiny, but um, but you're right. I mean, overall, I think it is a very powerful thing. When Adolf Hitler survived, and this is why a sense of destiny isn't necessarily always a good thing. Um, uh, when um, Adolf Hitler survived his uh, the bomb plot of the 20th of July 1944. Uh, he put it down to providence um, being the reason that he uh, that he survived that uh, that plot. To, um Napoleon, of course, had a very powerful sense of his own star, of following his uh, following his star. So, um, so yes, I think it is. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, in for most of us, um, if you or I um, said that we had a sense of destiny, um, it would be a um, a clear case of psychological disorder. So, you know, in most people, um, it's uh, it's a fairly sort of weird thing to have. But when you do get to the top and you do make um, uh, become a great leader. Um, it obviously is a, uh, a, a, a not necessarily a prerequisite, but um, something that um, can be seen again and again throughout history. And am I right in thinking it was Napoleon that said, "I am without irony. Um, I am the new Caesar." Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, and um, uh, and he very much thought of himself as the new Caesar um, all his life, and. Um, uh, even after he'd lost, which of course um, Caesar never did on the battlefield, um, he, when the, was creating institutions of France, the Senate, of course, the Empire himself, making himself Emperor, uh, you look at all the uh, various bits of um, symbolism that he used with the laurel leaf crown and so on. Um, it's a very straightforward, the architecture also a throwback to classical um, classical architecture. It's a very um, straightforward statement that, um, that he is the new Caesar. Again, this was obviously hubristic to a degree because his empire lasted 13 years rather than thousands. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it was um, something he profoundly believed. And he had his moments um, very much of the moment of self-belief. It was uh, when he was 26 years old at the Battle of Lodi, and he, or Lodi as, um, as it's also pronounced, and uh, he, he recognised after victory in that battle in Italy that um, he had what it took, not just to be a great commander, but to be a great man, um, and, uh, and, and, and said so. And that's and that sense of history was very important, wasn't it? You say in the book that um, they each, um, you know, like for example, Thatcher was, in, was inspired hearing Churchill's speeches on the Blitz, the Battle of Britain. Um, Churchill, in turn, was inspired by um, Napoleon. 
Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, and Napoleon was inspired by um, Alexander the Great and, and Julius Caesar. Yes, there is a sort of um, uh, apostolic succession almost um, between these uh, leaders and the way in which they uh, they in turn uh, inspire each other. And um, actually, uh, reading is another one. An interest in history is another thing that they have uh, together. Study history. Um, Churchill said to a uh, to a young American in the coronation at the time of the coronation uh, the luncheon in fact of the coronation he said study history study history for therein lie all the secrets of statecraft and many of these um, people Hitler um, it, it was his favorite subject at school um, Napoleon read voraciously in his school library um, the, the studying of history this was also true actually of um, military history of George Marshall and uh, and Dwight Eisenhower um, is a uh, a very important aspect of uh, of leadership. You mentioned the um, writing and the ability to produce good literature. Obviously, Churchill was obviously renowned for this. Um, but I was so fascinated to to read um, in your section about in your chapter about Hitler how Mein Kampf was just incredibly dull. There's barely a, a notable sentence to pluck from it. Um, yes, I, I think. Um, uh, it has to be up there with Das Kapital as the most boring book um, um, ever written by um, somebody who was as influential as uh, as uh, Karl Marx or Adolf Hitler. Um, it actually is also slightly misleading in that it's a um, book about um, attacking in the East, where of course he actually attacks in the West, um, and uh, and only when he'd been victorious in the West was he able to um, to uh, attack in the East. Had Stalin mastered it properly, he'd have never signed the Nazi-Soviet pact. Um, but nonetheless, Stalin, as I try and point out in the book, made mistake after mistake when it came to uh, to his um interaction with uh with the germans it is a it is important to to um read a lot um needless to say as i hardly need to say that to the bbc history magazine um but uh, nonetheless um i don't think any of the leaders the nine leaders i chose was um uninterested in in the past and um conversely there i was very interested that you said that it wasn't necessarily vital for them to be great public speakers. No, no. Uh, several of them were not great orators. Some, of them, Many of them were, of course. Uh, uh, Churchill, again, we go back to. Adolf Hitler, in his own way, was a mesmerising uh, public speaker. That was part of the problem, really. Um, but... Um, I don't think that that can be said. It certainly can't be said of Stalin or Napoleon, neither of whom were... Um, particularly good. So, yes, you'd imagine that um, being an orator is a prerequisite, but actually it turned out not to be. Many of them workaholics, um, Thatcher notably. Yes, putting in a lot of hours in the day. Again, Hitler is a... um, is a, is different here. Hitler was pretty lazy. In fact, he um, he didn't like um, uh, getting up early. He took long uh, walks and um, and basically uh, enjoyed to have tea and and would stop during the day. Uh, he enjoyed watching his um, his uh, lieutenants uh, working hard, and he would set them up against each other. In fact, in a deliberate way, um, sort of survival of the fittest kind of thing. But um, but the rest of them. Were, were workaholics. Um, Napoleon would have a 16-hour day. The reason that 
Churchill had his naps was that he believed that he could get squeeze an extra two hours out of the day at the end. Um, he was um, uh, joined by um, other famous workaholics like Eisenhower and, and George C. Marshall, who thought nothing of 16, 18 hours days. Um, and uh, yes, I think when you're at the absolute um, peak um, like this, you by and large have to work hard. Stalin worked hard as well, in fact. You identify in the book that many of the leaders had a sixth sense for politics. Yes, they did. They were, um, in the democratic sense, um, those ones who uh, who were democratic leaders were just very good at getting their messages across, not necessarily through um, great speeches I mentioned earlier, but through orders of the day or through proclamations or through um, the, the press. They they have a uh, a real ability to um, to get to make be made clear really all their listeners know knew what they were um trying to say and um and that's important again not just in war leadership of course that's also important in business leadership and uh, and political leadership in general but um but particularly it is true in war leadership because um when you're asking people to uh, risk their lives on a daily basis you have to um you have to enthuse them and uh, and as napoleon said at one point um you must speak to the soul uh, it's the thing that electrifies the men. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, but when he became leader of the Nazi party in uh, 1921, he recognised that he was a um, an orator who could transfix people. That was how he, this, this personality was able to, um, to lead his country down the road to disaster. You say in the book also on that theme that um, it was so important that the lead, many of the leaders had um, a, a real intuitive understanding of what their civilians and soldiers wanted, what what made them tick, what resonated with them. Um, and for example, like you remember you saying that Napoleon took a lot of time to um, spend time with his men to actually list, have a democratic sort of process in place. Yes, yes, it was a, it was a democratic process with very much a, a small small d because they weren't going to get the vote. Of course, um, he was uh, he was he was not going to um, uh, allow himself to be uh, sort of outnumbered or outmaneuvered um, by people in in that sense. Um, but he had a uh, he had a way with the with the men. You know, he uh, uh, would always ensure that the that the drummer boy was invited to uh, sit around the campfire and and uh, was allowed a glass of wine. And he made sure that the wine went out to his sentries and uh, little things like that. That of course altered uh, just just made people love him. And um, it was. Uh, it was. It's true of a of a great deal of these uh, leaders. Eisenhower was uh, was his his breezy, sunny, optimistic um, disposition was something that uh, that people very much liked seeing. They're really. Um, I suppose again, it's uh, it's something that um, that politicians 
the good politicians should have. The surprising thing is how many of them don't, um, in fact. But in in war leadership, that uh, that capacity to connect with the with the troops is something very special. And Napoleon definitely had it also in in that he would sometimes be rude about his own officers in front of the men um, if they weren't uh, providing the creature comforts that the men needed. And that ability to empathise as well, I saw you noted in the book that that was possibly more important than, say, um, a military background. Yes. I mean, there are several several um, people in this list who don't have any military background at all. Um, and to be a um, successful war leader with no military background, you you do have to have uh, built up this sort of trust with the, um, with the people. Um, so long as you are going in a direction that seems to promise ultimate victory, um, people will put up with an enormous amount. Um, it's interesting. The uh, the it's the direction of travel that seems to matter more than the individual um, uh, individual battles. And uh, and if there's a if there's seems to be a way towards uh, ultimate victory, um, people will go through hell. And how much do you think luck played a role in the success of these various leaders? Well, famously, of course... um uh, Napoleon said that he wanted his generals to be lucky. He chose his generals on the basis of of, uh, of their luckiness, which is an extraordinary thing um, to uh, to say, really, when one considers uh, all the various other attributes that somebody want has to have to to insist on them being lucky as well is uh, is a difficult one. But um, oh, I don't know. You see it again and again. Charles de Gaulle was um, was captured um, several times, and that people thought in the first. World War that he he was dead, you know, on several occasions, and uh, and he wasn't. He he was a tremendously uh, lucky politician. Um, there was a good deal of luck actually um, needed in the Falklands War with um, regard to the weather and uh, and so on. You know, whether some of those extra exosets got down there, whether or not they'd been they were used successfully. Um, it uh, it could have gone um, either way that uh, that war. Uh, in fact, the more we know about it, the more um, lucky Margaret Thatcher seems. It's not a. Um, it's not a thing that historians can terribly easily quantify, obviously, luck, but it's there and, um, and there's no getting around it. And another thing you mentioned was this idea of myth and image creation. Maybe you could talk us through what you meant by that. The, the most successful war leaders were able to um, make myths and, uh, and uh, legends whilst while still leading turn themselves into into living legends and you see this very strongly with Stalin um, during the Second World War um, where uh, people rush ordinary Russians um, they they felt they knew him even though of course um, they the actual personal interaction was was minute not least because he stayed very much in his dacha and in the Kremlin for 99 percent of the war um there was a, a a sense that your leader is somebody who is almost superhuman. Hitler, of course, was somebody who uh, who constantly tried to present himself as a Aryan um, 
Superman. Um, but actually, when you look at the kind of things he was saying to his entourage, um, they are extremely sort of nutty. An awful lot of them just very, very weird stuff, frankly. And I quote quite extensively in this book from his uh, table talk, which is um, which is a bit of a tainted source because um, uh, there have been people that say that um, that Martin Bormann, who was ta- the Nazi Party secretary, was taking everything down. Um, um, uh, didn't uh, take down everything that um, that the Führer was saying, and um, but I don't think there's any indication that he actually made anything up, or that he exaggerated wildly, and um, and yet you have Hitler just coming up with just theory after theory that seems to bear absolutely no uh, resemblance to any kind of um, of, of logical reason. Um, he believed he knew what dogs were thinking. Uh, he believed that uh, he could um, tell that Czechs were Mongolian because of the shape of their moustaches. Um, he believed that um, Franklin Roosevelt was Jewish. He had all sorts of... Like, there was a list of, of these weird um, beliefs that he uh, came up with in this book, which I think will, will surprise and, and shock and on occasion amuse readers. Maybe you could just talk us through how he managed to influence so many, given his limitations. Well, that's right. I mean, these extraordinary personal limitations. Um, But at the same time, he was talking to uh, people who felt that they'd been stabbed in the back, who felt terrible resentment uh, against capitalism and against the West for the 1920s and what they had to undergo after the First World War, who um, were... Um, certain of their greatness, and the Germans are a great people and always have been a great people, um, but they saw the way in which the um, Versailles Treaty uh, kept them constrained, and they were willing to go along with uh, with pretty much anything that was going to get them out of that uh, um, situation. And it's one of the great tragedies, obviously, of uh, the history of mankind that um, the person who rose up from the gutter to uh, to lead them was somebody as, uh, as fanatical as... Um, and bigoted as uh, as Adolf Hitler, it's it's a, a story that um, has been told many many times, of course. But I think that what I've tried to do in this is to fit him into a group of other leaders, Stalin, of course, also being a totalitarian uh, monster, um, but the others being uh, being much more civilized um, human beings, um, and to try to draw out those leadership qualities that he had uh, and see them really beyond the, um, the, the moral, as it were. It was, uh, it was not an easy thing to do. And I was fascinated that you described him as um, really quite a boring, um, well, at one point you say he was a soulless little weirdo, just a very strange... Somebody that you would you wouldn't uh, avoid in the street, you would just pass in the street. That's right. Yes, yes, that's right. I I I do believe that, and and the more that one reads of his table talk, the more one um, recognizes that that period when he was on the on the streets, um, living in down and out shelters um, between 1909 and 1914 uh, in Vienna, those five years, um, where he was exposed to a great deal of anti-Semitic uh, literature and to all the uh, all the horrors of, of anyone living on the street. Um, 
really must have um, affected his soul in in the most uh, appallingly dark way. And you see also, of course, with him that... um, and his his key moment, I mentioned earlier about how uh, people have these these key moments when they know that they're capable of leadership, um, and uh, and his came in uh, in 1919 and 20 up to 1923 really, where at the time of the Birol Putsch, uh, but when he became leader of the Nazi Party in uh, 1921. He recognised, because of these speeches that he gave in beer halls uh, in Munich, that he was a um, an orator who could transfix people, and um, it was uh, that was how he this this personality who is essentially a complete nullity of a human being was able to um, to lead his country down the road to disaster. And. You mentioned Stalin there. Um, I was fascinated to read that you said that actually his his um, leadership was actually perhaps more akin to, say, someone like Churchill's rather than... Yes, he started off the war, as you'd imagine, as the classic totalitarian dictator, um, being insisting on being in control of everything, um, like, uh, like Hitler did. But unlike Hitler, during the war, and especially, of course, after he suffered something akin to a mental breakdown after the Operation Barbarossa on the 22nd of June 1941 when Hitler invaded Russia, um, he started to move over and to give much more autonomy to um, marshals, who, marshals of the Soviet Union, who really understood uh, grand strategy so much better than him, people like Konyev and Zhukov and uh, Rokozovsky. And as a result, actually did far better. He um, he he chaired the Stavka committees, but he didn't believe that he was right all along. Whereas um, at the Wolfschanzer, Hitler would sit there and uh, or stand there more more likely uh, and listen to generals who knew far better than he about um, strategy. The people who had been to staff college um, when he had just been a uh, regimental runner in the First World War and were. Um, and yet he'd go back at the end of the... He'd listen with respect to these people. And then at the end of a very long meeting, uh, he'd go back to saying precisely what he'd originally said um, right at the beginning, maybe an hour earlier. Staying with Stalin for a moment, you say that Roosevelt and Churchill effectively sort of underestimated him because he wasn't a sort of typical dictator stereotype. He was well-spoken, well-organised, not without humour. That's right. And and they, they rather... Um, uh, it's it's a terrible thing to say of um, democratic leaders, but um, in the Potsdam Conference in um, 1945, Churchill actually told Anton Eden about Stalin, I like that man. Now, this is a terrible thing, really, and it's very difficult as a biographer of Churchill to, um, to see this because um, and to deal with it, because uh, how could he possibly like somebody who he knew in the 1930s had uh, organised um, deliberate artificial famines in Ukraine that killed millions? Um, he had, uh, very soon after the Katyn massacre, Churchill had found out about it and knew that it was uh, Stalin who had killed 20-plus thousand uh, Poles in the Katyn forest. And um, and elsewhere, and uh, 
And yet he was still able to say, I, I like that man. And then at the Yalta conference, of course, he also, although he had very few alternatives at that stage, he actually trusted him when uh, Stalin promised Poland its integrity and independence. So there is a um, there is a sort of moral issue here. Now, the way that, of course, I think um, ultimately one must see it is that for every five Germans killed in the Second World War, for, by which I mean... Um, died on a battlefield as opposed to being bombed from the air um, in the strategic bombing offensive. But for every five soldiers killed on a battlefield, four of them died on the Eastern Front. So it was essential for Hitler, uh, sorry, (laughs) essential for Churchill to get on with... um, uh, with Stalin, and um, and I'm afraid um, there'd seem no alternative. One of the other leaders I wanted to ask you about was um, was Nelson. Uh, you say in your book that biographers really need to get their priorities right when it comes to assessing Nelson. What did you mean by that? Well, um, they they talk about his um, his personality and the drawbacks to his um, personality, and there are several. Um, he was a very vain man. Uh, he was a um, uh, pretty um, bigoted when it came to the French, I mean, obs- obsessively so. Um, and he was somebody who uh, had, he was a, uh, I mean, his his belief was constant attack, um, always be on the offensive, and, uh, and, and he did it absolutely brilliantly. But um, his, uh, his personality and the, and the problems with it, and of course his uh, affair with um, M. Hamilton, seem to have distracted um, a lot of biographers who fail to appreciate that we also have um, certainly one of the uh, greatest... Um, military figures in the in the history of warfare the extraordinary capacity he had for attack was um, something that um, was utterly single-minded and maybe you needed to be that fanatical in order to um, uh, pull off the the victories that Nelson did um, so uh, so yes I think the the, the priority should be um, Greatest admiral in uh, in the history of the Royal Navy, but but beyond that as well. I mean, lots of people would put him up as one of the greatest admirals of all time, and um, and the worries about whether or not he was obsessed with getting um, you know peerages and knighthoods and things like that uh, has to be put to to one side. That was just something that everyone was obsessed with in the 18th century. And his death, you said that in your book, there was no such public outpouring of raw emotion until the death of Diana in 97. That's right, yes. Even um, even Queen Victoria, uh, for example. I mean, of course, the people were much more stiff upper-lipped um, in the Victorian period than they were in the Regency period, or as we discovered um, in uh, at the time of uh, the death of um, Lady Diana. But it was, a, uh, it was a massive outpouring of emotion. Actually, all of the admirals who carried Nelson's coffin were um, in tears in St Paul's Cathedral, which is an extraordinary thought. One would be um, rather surprised if that was the case um, today. So having looked at all these leaders in depth, who do you feel was the greatest? I think that's a very good question, um, Emma. I'm going to, if I may, just read out the last 
part of the last paragraph of Napoleon, um, the uh, the essay on Napoleon, where I say, because I think it, uh, the reason I want to do this is that it sums up lots of the leadership um, qualities necessary, um, and uh, and I think it answers your question. Napoleon's career demonstrated the importance of compartmentalization, meticulous planning, knowledge of terrain, superb timing, steady nerves, valuing the importance of discipline and training, understanding the psychology of the ordinary soldier to create esprit de corps, the issuing of inspirational speeches and proclamations, controlling the news, adapting the tactical ideas of others, asking pertinent questions of the right people, a deep learning and appreciation of history, a formidable memory, utter ruthlessness when necessary, the deployment of personal charisma, immense calm under unimaginable pressure, especially in moments that look like defeat, an almost obsessive compulsive attention to detail, rigorous control of emotions and the ability to exploit a momentary numerical advantage at the decisive point on the battlefield, and, not least, good luck. Even though he was ultimately defeated, Napoleon is the wartime leader against whom all the others must be judged. That was Andrew Roberts. His book, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Andrew also wrote a feature for BBC History magazine about the lessons that leaders have learnt from the past. You can read that on our website at historyextra.com forward slash war dash leaders. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Sinclair Mackay will be discussing the bombing of Dresden in 1945. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.